Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz and Karen Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is Episode 75, Interview with J.C. Bedford. Welcome, J.C., from Waves from Across the Water. I am waving from across the water, yes. JC, you live in the UK and you write fantasy and science fiction. Tell us about how long you've been at this exciting writing business. Oh, well, I've been at the writing business probably since I was about five. Um, but I've actually been at the publishing business since, I, since about 1998. I think I, I got my first short story published then. Uh, and I managed to sell my first novel uh, in, well, it came out in 2014. So um, my overnight success only took 16 years. <laughs> that is a great encouragement. We, we love all of the different, this is to reiterate everybody who listens that may want to write one day, please do not give up if people don't love your novel, your very first instance. Uh, it wasn't my first novel that ever got published, but my first novel, uh, the first novel that got published uh, was one that I wrote perhaps about fourth or fifth. By the time I actually got published, I had seven novels in the uh, in the big dustbin at the back of my computer. Well, I think I met JC for the, for the other two. I met JC. JC and I met each other at Milford, which is the um, a science fiction writing uh, workshop um, for feedback. And I actually read a draft or part of a draft of the novel that you first sold. And that was in 2007 to just kind of add to the timeline there. Yeah, I mean, that particular novel I'd also taken in a different form to the first Milford I ever did, which was 1998. You can't go to Milford unless you've had um, at least one short story published. So my short story publication uh, got me entry into Milford, and that was the novel I took. I, I expected everybody to love it, and of course they didn't, but I got some very good feedback on it, which eventually meant that I sold it. Now, Milford, the Milford Writers Conference, and we'll put a link back up on the webpage for all that. I believe it's something like you submit your first 10,000 pages. So in some ways, it's kind 10, of 10,000 like, pages? <laughs> I'm sorry, 10,000 words. 10, yeah. words. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so in a lot of ways, it really is helping you clean up for your queries, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And you can send, as long as you, well, send between ten and 12,000 words, it can be in one or two pieces. So you can send a novel beginning and a short story or two novel beginnings or two short stories. Um, it's fairly flexible like that, but we only take a maximum of 15 people at each conference. So it gives you have to have, been... to have a really good um, sort through any uh, submissions that everybody sent and and do full critiques on them but kind critiques we we don't go easy on people but we we definitely um don't aim to kind of shred anybody personally yes that's one of the things i liked and appreciated about milford because when i, I when i came i had sold one short story and um and i didn't know anybody but liz and liz williams who is also part of that invited me and she had me at it's in Wales you can see Mount Snowden out the window of the critique room so yeah very nice place. And she was right you can see Mount Snowden out of the critique room and the private lake at Trigonos where we are where we all stay and it's yes it is lovely the weather can be a little changeable but it's lovely. 
Yes, I saw that this next one, well, 2020, of course, was canceled. 2021 is booked out, but 2022 looks like there's still some slots open for it. Yes, there are still slots open for 2022. I think I've, I think I've got about five or six bookings in for that. But as I say, we can take 15 people. So huh. um, there are still plenty of spaces for 2022. Maybe I'll say it's a cheap excuse what, to go to Wales. <laughs> oh, you should. But one of the things, but um, one of the things that impressed me so much about Milford is the they started a few years ago two bursaries, which are, is a what do we call them? Scholarships. Scholarships. Two scholarships for people of color who are writers to come to Milford because it's a very white conference. <laughs> otherwise, because it's. Um, you know, it's in England. Um, Wales. I mean, Wales, but the, the conference, it, it was first moved to, to England yeah. and then now it's in Wales. But uh, anyway, but I was so very impressed by that because um, for two people, because so that there wouldn't be one person of color surrounded by all of these white people. So anyway. It's actually worked very well. Um, we, we've had, we're, we're now in our, well, this would have been our fourth year had it gone ahead. Uh, but since we've rolled over everybody's memberships onto 2021, our two bursary writers uh, will be joining us in 2021 instead of this year. So we were disappointed not to be able to run, but obviously we need to, to keep it COVID safe. And uh, at that point in time, it wasn't guaranteed to be that. Um, so we, we decided to just roll it on. Uh, we also do, um, in the spring, uh, we do a writing retreat in the same venue. Uh, which basically is no critiquing, but a bunch of writers kettled up together in the same place. Everybody has their own room, everybody has their own desk, uh, and everybody takes meals together. But after that, you can do what the hell you want, uh, and it's it's lovely. We had um, uh, C.E. Murphy came the, to the second writers' retreat that we did. She managed 30,000 words in a week, which I thought was Oh, amazing. I mean, Katie's an overachiever, but wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, so, I am in awe. I am on her newsletter. She sends so much amazing stuff out. The woman's machine. Yeah, she came with Leah and um, the van broke down on the way uh, and they had to call out the roadside assistance. And while they, <laughs> while they were waiting for the roadside assistance, Katie had a desk set up and was making Leah write as well. <laughs> oh i love it so describe say the milford method is is talked about over and over again on the website describe the milford method to us okay um everybody sits around in a circle uh and we don't join hands and try and contact the living but we all sit around in a circle and the piece under discussion Um, We usually start with uh, the writer on one or the other side of the writer who's being critted that particular time. And then it goes round the circle um, and everybody gets four minutes to say what they think about the piece. Um, And that's uninterrupted. Nobody else is allowed to speak. The person who is being critted is not allowed to respond at that time. So it goes around the whole circle, comes back to the critique who is then uh, allowed uninterrupted right of reply so at which point in time not that anybody ever does you could say but you don't understand my genius or something (laughs) like that um but in actual fact (laughs) nobody ever does that nobody's ever run out in tears or um 
or, or kind of died under their chair or anything like that. Um, so then they get their uninterrupted right of reply. They can answer questions that have been asked during the critique round. And then it kind of devolves into um, a bit of general conversation. Um, nobody discusses a piece before it's been critted formally, but after it's been critted formally. So you might find in the evening after dinner, people are sitting around and somebody will start talking about the piece and then there will be more ideas come in. Um, that happens quite often. Or two or three people will go off in a huddle and they'll be basically working out ideas between themselves. It's a really exciting environment to be in, especially when I showed up having sold one story uh, to realize who I, you know, some of the writers that I was with, I'm like, wow, um, I was, I was very impressed. But so I was the same, Karen, the first time I went, I'd only sold one story uh, and didn't know what to expect. And then had people like um, Liz Williams and Patricia Reedy, uh, all kinds of people in there. And uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Um, I, I learned a lot and continue to learn a lot. I've been to a lot of Milford's between 1998 and now. In fact, I hung out there so often that they eventually made me secretary, gave me a job. Yeah, <laughs> I've been to Milford twice and I have read pieces, accredited piece from one from at least each of the, your first two series. And I think you've started a third one. So can you tell us a little bit about your novels? Um, sure. You know, the, the, they were, they say they're very good, but very somewhat different. And so I just from each other and I just, Tell us about them. Okay, please. well, they are different from each other. One is um, a space space opera science fiction, uh, and the other is historical fantasy. So, yes, they couldn't be much further apart, really, yeah. on the spectrum. Um, the space opera is, well, basically I write characters in situations. So the space opera is um, basically uh, about a bunch of telepaths who are owned by one of the large corporations and it's how they get out of that ownership um, through a series of, uh, well, misadventures really. Uh, and it starts with Kara, who is basically on the run from her ex-boss, who decides to uh, hide out by taking another job, which is basically settling a colony on a far off planet. Uh, and of course, when the planet proves to be rich um, in minerals, Everything goes pear-shaped. The company wants to try and take back the planet and they end up with a um, basically a, a get-out-of-here kind of novel, uh, which is then continued in, into the second one because they're sorting out the aftermath of the first one. Uh, we, and that ends up in a great big stage battle. And then the third one is sorting out the results of that one as well. Um, basically, by this time, our company of um, uh, telepaths has gone rogue, as it were, uh, and they're basically uh, working up from a station called Crossways, which is a rogue station full of criminals, but they have better intent than the, uh, the, the, the corporations that everybody's running from. So that's the, the first trilogy. Uh, the second one is... Wait, 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 wait. What are the titles? Oh, right. Sorry. Empire of Dust, uh, Crossways and Nimbus. And in Nimbus, they find a, a rather strange alien in uh, fold space, which, uh, which kind of spices things up a little bit. Cool. And, and are you going to write more in that series? Or is that done? You know, Chad, I can't decide. Um, I've got <laughs> a couple of things whirling around in my head. Uh, at the moment, it's a complete trilogy, but there what? could be side stories which would take mm -hmm. things on from there. There are a couple of characters who... 
um, disappeared out of the third book and there are possibilities of kind of following them. Um, so, yeah, and uh, I'm kind of working on a bit of a short story at the moment, which is within that same universe. Oh, and novellas are the thing these days, too. Sorry, say again, please. Excuse me? Say again. Novellas oh. seem to be the thing these days, too. Yes. I, I don't know. I've never written anything at novella length. Um, I, I'm not yeah. sure, because I'm published by Door in the US, and I'm not sure that they published novellas. And publishing a novella in one series, which is published by another publisher, might be a bit awkward. I don't know. Yes. Chaz might be able to say more about that. You're, you're better at the publishing world than I am, Chaz. Oh, I would not say that particularly. <laughs> um, looking at my long and glorious career. Um, however, yeah, um, certainly we were talking recently to a big publisher who shall remain nameless um, about my writing a some novellas for them. And they did say this what this this whole world you're talking about is so rich and so deep. There are going to be novels springing off of this, aren't there? And I said, yes, of course there are. Um, and they said, oh, we would want to tie those down too, because we wouldn't want to be publishing novellas as an advertisement for some other publishers' novels, um, which seemed entirely fair to me. Um, it, the deal didn't happen in the end, of course. But, <laughs> but, but going, no, going the other way, going from published novels to novellas on the side, if your main publisher doesn't do novellas, then there, there could be no conceivable objection to your publishing novellas with another, with another company, especially as, as they would, again, work as advertisements for the novels. Because there are things like, you know, um, is it tour.com? Um, no, who, who? What? Who's the online company that publishes all the the um, novellas? Novellas. Tor. Tor. It is it Tor. Is Tor. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Tor.com does novellas, and uh, they've been you know popping up a lot of things published by Tor.com in the uh, you know Hugo nominations and things like that. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, you're so absolutely you're, right. I've not even thought about that, but yeah, maybe. I wanted to back up and ask a question on the plot line because I, I love this. And I was years ago as a kid, I read um, Anne McCaffrey's To Ride Pegasus. And oh, the whole, yes, I love that. Yeah. And, and that was just thinking because yours is, I mean, in Anne McCaffrey's Half Free World, the corporations are all wonderful and everybody loves them and the, you know, a Tell and tell moves big things and makes planetary exploration possible. I love your concept. That's what if all the corporations weren't necessarily benign? <laughs> I feel that I feel that that's almost more relevant to a modern world and reader than than Ms. McCaffrey's. <laughs> yeah, I think all the corporations, my corporations, I don't think any of them are benign. Some are, some may be slightly better than others, but. Uh, the two that uh, are major players in the whole trilogy are, are not only not benign to their employees, but they absolutely hate each other as well. So it allows for plenty of room for conflict. I and, yeah, I mean, we look at corporations today and, you know, whether it's the big corporation named after a South American river or whatever, you know, they have good points, but they also become so big um, I... that they also have bad points as well. I was just going to say, all three of us live in Silicon Valley. We are entirely embraced by corporations and 
there's not a benign one among them. And you know, the, corp <laughs> the corporate mindset is not benign to individuals at all. Yeah. Um, and, and I am now slightly boggled at the notion that Anne could have conceived a universe where all corporations <laughs> were benign, because... It was maybe a different world in those days. I mean, we, we did read that. I can't remember when that book was published, but yes, I read it when I was very young. Yeah. And, uh, and I was thinking between your books are almost more than in line with like uh, the Expanse novels of what if nation states didn't have everybody's best interest at heart and corporations were just in it for the money. I love how yours are taking the, there are more stories I think to tell about individual humans and our paths and where they go. So I, I think that makes your series really exciting to a modern reader. Oh, thank you. Um, hope so. And uh, certainly, you know, I haven't finished exploring that universe. I'm, I probably won't take those same characters on any further. Um, not unless they're getting quite elderly and have children, shall we say, and then <laughs> it goes to the kids. I, uh, I, we, yes, we've all I, talked about we're waiting for the elderly woman to go on a crusade you know, helped by her nurse along, because we would all read that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's probably not a bad idea either. Um, so tell us about the historical fantasy. Yeah, the second trilogy. It's, yeah. um, it's set in 1800. The, the titles um, are uh, Winterwood and Silverwolf and Rowankind. It's actually the Rowankind trilogy, but that book doesn't crop up until the end. It's set in 1800 in a Britain with magic. Uh, and everything historically is as accurate as I can make it. So Napoleon's knocking at the door. Uh, King George III has gone balmy for the second or third time. Um, and everything is, as I say, as historically accurate as I can make it, except where I don't, because I digress for the magic. Um, magic is uh, not forbidden, but... To use magic, you have to be a registered magic user. You have to register at the age of 18. Uh, and if you don't, if you're an unregistered witch, then they can basically haul you off and hang you. Um, so my heroine there uh, is Rosalind Tremaine, um, Ross, uh, as she basically captains a, a privateer ship dressed as a man. Um, she's a widow and she basically took over from her husband, um, she eloped at the age of 18, which means she didn't have time to go and um, register as a, as a witch. Um, but she eloped at 18. She had four years with her wonderful husband, and then he was killed in a very silly accident during a storm. Uh, ah. So since then, she's basically taken over the running of the privateer ship, and she basically goes after... She's got letters of mark from the king, so she's going after French merchantmen uh, in Napoleon's uh, France. So there she is. Uh, and then everything gets rather complicated because she's drawn back to um, visit the mother that she's not seen since she eloped, and the mother's on a deathbed and gives her basically something that should have been passed on to her many years ago, and it's a sealed box. It's a box which is made of winter wood, which is basically ensorcelled wood. And Ross can't open it. And she says, how do I open this? And the mother says, that's for you to find out. I never wanted any part of it. And so part of the, part of the story is about learning how to open the box, but then learning about what happens, what message is inside the box. Uh, and it's basically to do with a race of, of beings who've been... <laughs> 
uh, well, they're, they're basically—they're not exactly slaves, but they're—they they're basically live in British households. They're servants. They keep their heads down. They're really bond servants. Uh, and it turns out that there's a rather magical reason for this, and Ross has to sort it out. Uh, in the middle of this, she meets Corwin, who's a wolf shape changer, um, and she really doesn't like him at first because the ghost of her late husband, who's quite prominent in this first book, um, doesn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> the ghost is somewhat jealous um, and uh, so it kind of there's a bit of a romance there's a magical mystery there's a big decision to make at the end which might or might not have good consequences um, and then the second book is basically following on from the decision that was made there and in the third book we're dealing with freeing the Rowan kind completely um, and the Fae are getting involved in it as well so it kind of goes on from one thing to the other yeah it's a fun one that's a fun one <laughs> i enjoyed writing it i must admit i do like historical fantasy is um, it i do too and i've noticed um england and magic seems to show up so often in really good fantasy novels oddly enough so it's like just from childhood england and magic were always you know and i went there and there there i went to going to wales was was you know and and talking with all these fantasy writers and science fiction writers was also England and magic. So I mean I think Wales. it's the um, the place that we go to in Wales at uh, Trigonos is just down the valley from where the red dragon and the white dragon are supposed to have had a face off in uh, in way 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 back. Um, so you know you're kind of in amongst all the folklore there already. Yes, yeah, the, the yeah. Arthurian. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Jesse, I read that you actually had a blog dissecting your opening chapters in Winterwood, that mom scene on the deathbed. I, yes. And I really need, I'm gonna, I'll put a link out there for readers to look at the details, but how do you think about openers? I, I mean, if I was wondering about how this related. You like, instead of, you, you dissect and show how to show instead of tell. Do you, do you kind of start with that, okay, I, this is the situation, and then you write it, or do you write it and then diagram it? How do you approach opening a story? Oh, I'm dreadful. I'm kind of not quite a plotter and not quite a pantser. Um, I, I tend to get an idea, and it, it's often it's a scene or a situation, as in that scene in Winterwood where Ross is in the bedroom and uh, her mother's on the deathbed, and it all came to me more or less... That was the first thing I wrote, and I, I changed very little of it over the subsequent um, iterations of the book. Um, so I usually get a scene in my head, and I write it, and then see what happens after that. So I'm kind of a discovery writer in that sense. I get maybe about ten or 20,000 words into it, and then I go, right, I better plot this properly. Uh, and I sit back and scribble something on the back of an envelope. I usually know where the story's going to end, and I know how it's going to begin. And then my plot synopsis in the middle is kind of cloudy and murky. And it says, stuff happens. And that's <laughs> what I get sometimes. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really, I don't really analyze a beginning before I do it. I mean, maybe we'll analyze it afterwards. Um, I'm currently working on an old story, which um, actually was the first, first novel I ever finished. Um, 
and I'm trying to rewrite the beginning because the beginning wasn't very good. I have rewritten this beginning maybe 10 times now. Okay. The whole novel's finished, but I've, I've rewritten the beginning 10 times or more. And I, I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, and I thought, this is just not working. So I've just basically put all the beginning to one side, and I'm starting it in a completely new place. Now, whether that will work or not, I don't know. Beginning's huh. hard. Yeah. yeah, beginnings are. Well, Beginnings are easy. Well, I started two stories this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've started a hundred stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really depends. I mean, sometimes you get the wind in your sails, and you can write ten thousand words without worrying about it. And other times, oh, it's like it's like pulling teeth. It, it's really difficult, um, and I don't think it gets any easier with with more books. Really. Oh, it certainly doesn't. It gets harder. Because yes. you've done things the easy way. You have to find different methods and different approaches and um, different positions. Absolutely. And, yeah. so I feel like you need a T-shirt that says, how to write a beginning. Open your page and start writing. Yeah. Uh, chapter two, how to write a good beginning. <laughs> the seventh, the, my seventh novel is being published by Door, and I've just signed the contract for it. And it's another historical fantasy uh, called The Amber Crown. Um, and at the moment I'm waiting on editorial feedback so it, it probably won't be out until January 2022 um, but wow. uh, again that beginning came to me very easily I, the picture came into my head the, the big bell in the city tolls the death knell of a king and the guy who's supposed to keep the king safe is sitting in a tavern with a whore on his knee because he's taken one night off <laughs> in I don't know how long and everything's gone pear-shaped while he's not in the palace. Huh. Uh, and he ends up on the run, being blamed for the, uh, for the murder, uh, or assassination, I should say. Uh, and it all kind of goes pear-shaped from there. We've, I've got three main characters, and I'm telling the point of view from three different characters in not quite alternating, but nearly alternating chapters. Um, so I've got the failed bodyguard. Um, I've got the... Uh, the witch, who's a, a traveller, basically, um, from another country, but they're travelling through. Uh, and I have the assassin, uh, who's started it all off in the first place. Uh, but, you know, is the assassin really the bad guy, or is he just the instrument which somebody else set in motion? So um, he's, he's a really interesting character. He's got a lot of backstory and a lot of things to sort out before he can basically move forward. Sounds like fun. That sounds, that, that sounds very good. I'm looking forward to 2022. <laughs> I know. It would be nice if it came out before, but I doubt that. I'm never sure whether books published in January or December really, um, really sometimes get the notice that they deserve. Um, I, want, I once saw a chart where uh, a New York publisher had drawn up in one column month by month through all the reasons why it was best to publish a book in that month. And then in the second column, all the reasons why it was best not to publish a book in that month. Um, so really there is, there is, there is no consensus here at any rate. Oh, right. I was going to say which month came out best. <laughs> no, there, I mean, there really isn't. Um, historically, I mean, obviously people, people aim strong, expectedly popular novels for the, end of the autumn season to catch the Christmas sales. Yes. Um, and apart from that, there is, there is no particular reason 
to publish or not publish in any particular month. Well, I've noticed that the mystery series that I've followed over the years mm. always seem to have new, um, new, new version or new novels at the beginning of summer. So again, there was yeah, there was there was, there was summer reading, which people think. Um, so you you pitch your you pitch your literary novels for the autumn because that also falls in with the Booker Prize ah. nominations and stuff. Um, and you pitch your genre novels for the beginning of summer so that, that all the summer reading people will grab them. But honestly, this is not. It's it's as much look when I um, when I was first publishing. What everyone said was that white books don't sell. <laughs> nobody, nobody published books with white covers because white books didn't sell. Right. And then Len Dayton published one of his Cold War thrillers with a white cover, and it sold Billio because <laughs> he was Len Dayton. And suddenly, you know, the mood shifted, and white covers were good to go. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, my particular book had been scheduled before Lens was such a success. Um, and so when they showed me the first draft cover, I looked at it and said, oh, I thought white, white books didn't sell. And they said, nah, we don't think that really. And then they went back to the art department and changed it. Um, so, the, so that it actually came out with a green cover. Right. Guess what? Green covers don't sell. Yeah, I've heard green covers don't sell as well. My first book had a green cover too. Right. Yeah, um, it is, there is nothing is fixed. Nobody knows anything, but there are always folk beliefs. <laughs> See that? So, Juicy, I, again, I was digging through the different bits of advice that you have out there. You had a tool that I'd never run into that it made me so happy to see called Wordle. Oh, Wordle's fabulous, yes. Because I've always um, go through in my drafts and I overuse the word slightly and very. but. Right. Tell me about Wordle. Wordle's fantastic. You can go to the Wordle site and download it onto your machine. You only used to be able to use it online, but now you can download it and have your very own copy. Uh, and basically, you paste your text into Wordle, and it makes an image with all your words. And the more you've used a word, the bigger it is in the image. So... I have overused words, and Wordle is terrific for helping me to sort them out. Um, so I, I overuse the word back. Um, everybody goes back or turns back or looks back or whatever. Uh, and then I suddenly realize that I've used the word something, you know, hundreds of times throughout the whole manuscript. Um, so it helps you pick out things like that. All right, your main character's names need to be big, uh, but... But all those little, um, thats the words that catch you out, you, you tend to spot on Wordle. Uh, this and is genius. Really rather good. This is genius because this is a standard tool that marketing departments and graphic people use saying, oh, we're talking about all of the big, most important words of an area. This is using that same technology to find errors. So yes. that's fantastic. Yes, well, that's the way there. I use it anyway. I mean, anybody can use it any way they like, just to make pretty pictures if they want to. But, uh, but yes, that's the way I use it. And you can paste the whole text of a whole book in it, um, which is not inconsiderable, considering some of mine run at 170,000 words. Ooh. So you can? Put, yes, you, you can. You can? Oh, wow. 
that's helpful. That's yeah. helpful. Are there are there any other helpful tools that you would throw out? I mean, we've thrown out Grammarly for people that are just getting started on their careers. Are, are there other tools that you love saying, hey, this is wonderful for polishing? Um, no, not for polishing. There's one that I discovered, um, which was very good for um, using to highlight your book covers and I just can't remember what it was called now but basically you can import your book cover as a as an image and it will basically show it as a book rather than just an image it will fit it onto the cover of a book or an iPad uh, or a phone Um, and so if you're you know you're constantly trying to plug your book of course uh, and if you do that um, you can have slightly different views of your book um, so that was quite nice. That's in one of my blogs, but I just can't remember which it is at the moment. Well, I will put a link to all of your blogs up there because I, I appreciated them very much. I think it, maybe you've been so long working with Milford, you have some really great advice out there, like your Rejectomancy blog and some <laughs> yes, discussions. Yes, came, I guess I used to be on a, uh, I used to be on a, a basically a, a writer's list and uh, we used to talk about rejectomancy on that uh, everybody trying to figure out how far up the slush pile they'd managed by the wording of the rejection that they got uh, really again as Chaz has said before it, it it doesn't make any difference at all really no but it's- I actually got I actually got a a personalized rejection letter it's the first personalized rejection letter I've gotten and it's from the uh, the editor of fantasy and science fiction who's leaving, oh, so, <laughs> but I suspect the only reason he did it with Karen Williams, which was my old name, is common as mud. Karen Brinchley, there's like six of us in the country, and so if you say Karen Brinchley in writing, everyone knows I'm Chaz's wife, and everyone knows Chaz, so it's kind of like let's be nice to her. So <laughs> we like Chaz, so that's, that's what I figured. Yeah, I occasionally get. Um, personalized projections um, which you know you'd, you'd think wouldn't you oh it's a rejection I'm going to be terribly sad uh, but actually they are quite helpful sometimes um, I, I don't do much short story writing or submitting at the moment um, I, I will occasionally submit um, short stories to uh, the zombies need brains uh, upcoming uh, collections um, and I've got one I need to finish by the end of December uh, for uh, a book that's coming out next year. Uh, and it's very nice because I know it's pre-sold as long as I don't make an absolute mess of it. Uh, so that that's absolutely lovely. Uh, but I, I don't actually do much um, short story writing on spec and sending out. I did, though, um, just after I got my first book deal, uh, which... I think I actually knew I'd I'd signed this in 2013 and I was kind of between books at that point. Uh, The the first one had gone in and I was waiting for um, basically editorial comment on it. So I decided to look at all the old short stories that I'd got and send them out again. I've been very bad at sending out short stories. Maybe you send them out and they take about three months to come back in and it's rejected and you just look at it and you leave it on your hard drive and maybe a year or two later you'll send it out again. Well, um, a young lady called Deborah who came to Milford gets hundreds and hundreds. Was she there when you were there, Karen? 
Yeah, oh yeah, that yeah. was the second time yeah. I went. She's awesome. Short story sales because she's really good at sending out. Uh, you know, if something comes back in, she'll just turn it around the same day and send it out. Uh, and her motto is submit until your fingers bleed. <laughs> and and, so, and so she does reprint. I had, I had a month when I wasn't actually doing very much. I think it was about October, November time, um, 2014 or thereabouts. And I took every short story that was in my um, hard drive that hadn't been sold. And I sent them out. And the instant they came back, I sent them out again. And the instant they came back, I sent them out again. Uh, and by the January, I was starting to get acceptances. And in three months, I sold 15 short stories. Wow. Which actually doubled the amount of short stories I'd sold in the whole rest of my career. <laughs> Uh, and it was just because I sent the damn things out. Because yes. nobody's going to buy it if you don't send it out. Yes. And she does reprints, too. Yes, I sent reprints out as well. I got some foreign reprints, which was really nice. I got some translations. Um, so uh, I've probably been published in a weird set of languages like uh, Polish and Estonian, which are not weird to the people who live in Poland and Estonia, it's of course. I just want to say something in favor of the Polish science fiction and fantasy industry. They brought us a, a magnificent series with The Witcher. And oh yes, I've seen them. I've seen the television series. I have, I have read, read the book. The books are magnificent because they're the fairy tale tellings I always wanted. The television series is beautiful because I could watch Henry Cavill do almost anything. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there there are some very important international markets, and I I love that you bring up that. There may be opportunities for your for people's works to be published in other countries and other languages too. Yeah, I have to say that the translations of short stories don't usually pay, but it's quite nice to have them, isn't it? Well, yeah. absolutely, and and there are not many people that can get rich writing short stories, except maybe oh, Deborah no. Walker. I don't know, but for <laughs> everyone else, yes, I think I think Debs can is the is the only one who can get rich because it plus. She, she writes so much. That's the other thing. She writes so much. She sends it out. I mean, it's almost like it's her job. <laughs> and um, and she gets better and better and better and better and better. And, oh, I wish I had her, yeah. her whatever it is that she has yeah. to get all that done. I think she's working on a, on a novel at the moment. So maybe, I don't know whether she's still sending out as many shorts. But, uh, but yes, I mean, she, um, she, she doesn't... Uh, she doesn't have a day job, and uh, she writes between her children going out of the house first thing in the morning and then getting back from school in the evening. That's her writing time. And ah. She really makes the most of it, treats it as a day job, in fact. Yeah. We should probably get her on the blog, on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we probably should. I can send you her email, yeah. Excellent. Please do. So, JC, do you have um, any other sites that you want us to talk about or bring up that we can uh, pimp out for you? Do you have a Patreon account? Are you one of those that has embraced Patreon? I don't have a Patreon account. Um, it would be nice to think of it, wouldn't it? But no, I don't. I have, an, uh, I have a website and I have a blog and I also maintain the Milford blog. So there are two blogs going out weekly on WordPress. One is just me as JC Bedford and uh, and the other one is uh, Milford SF. All right. So we will put we will put links to those SF blogs. Writers, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, we, we're always looking for, for blog posts. If anybody wants to send us a blog post <laughs> which vaguely connects with Milford or writing or science fiction or fantasy, then I'm always very happy to see new blog posts. The, uh, the basic um, sweet spot is about between five and 800 words, but I've taken blogs that have been 2,000. I've taken a series of eight, uh, actually a series of eight blogs which we ran in the summer by somebody who writes professional cover blurb for publishers and yeah. basically did an eight piece blog on how to write your own blurbs. And it was brilliant. <laughs> okay. I am marking that down because I want to link to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, which absolutely. Um, we will include all of these links to uh, JC's stories and books and the other interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. JC, if we have questions that come up, would you mind answering them for our future tale readers? I would be absolutely delighted. Fantastic. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre mcgaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC t-shirts. And our love is given over to the Bean Scene Coffee Shop in downtown Sunnyvale. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>